We all know that theology is the study and the nature of God and religious beliefs. However, there's so many in the religious world today who moved away from that study of theology and moved more towards the study of themselves, making worship and church and uh, anything regarding religion about themselves. And it's labeled as meology, and you can find a few articles on this online. This actually just randomly came up one day when I was taking a training, and the guy was talking about it was a driver safety training, Smith School training. I mean, it's the idea of, you know, those drivers out there who suffer from meology and the drivers who do nothing but care about themselves and what they're doing on the road and what they're going and ignore everybody else. And so it's just kind of been swirling in my head. There was an article from one of those online that I found by uh, a gentleman named Jeff Shreve. And his one of his quotes says, don't let your meology form your theology but let sound theology gleaned from the truth of God's word rule and reign in your life. I think that's a good point that we have to go back to the word of God, let it rule in our lives. And it's not a new concept by any means. Some of the articles I read for 2010 um, and up, but it's just a new fancy name for selfishness or whatnot. But if we look at every denomination in the world, it comes from some sort of meology, doesn't it? And they were started by a man, whereas the church was started by God, who thought they knew a better way to make church besides God's way. Then is altered by a committee or multiple committees or somebody else and split five times. And they all think they know more about what worship is and what worship is not um, than God does. And that's meology, or as we studied on Wednesday night, liberalism and, pre and preaching, right, Brother Paul? That's what it is. It's the liberalism of what the people want to do. We only preach what edifies, encourages, lifts up, not what rebukes, chastens, corrects. Preach what pleases us. And that's the idea of meology. And that, brethren, is a sin. If you guys haven't told, told uh, or figured out by now, I listen to a lot of music and different songs and things and things. And we all probably heard the song, country artist, uh, the song by the country artist Toby Keith called, I Want to Talk About Me, right? Is back in 2009, and part of it, that song says, you know, talking about you makes me smile, but every once in a while I want to, I want to talk about me, I want to talk about I, I want to talk about number one, oh me, oh my, me, mine. What I think, what I like, what I know, what I want, what I see, I like talking about you, 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 usually, but occasionally I want to talk about me. And that's a lot of the world today. So we have, we're going to look at some Old Testament examples of meology and some New Testament examples, then we're going to talk about how we can avoid that and why that is not the right way. We can go all the way back to Judges chapter 17, and there's a lot of Old Testament examples, but in Judges 17, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did right what was right in his own eyes. Doing right in our own eyes. That's the that idea of that I'm going to do what matters to me. So what was their answer for it? Well, we jump all the way up to 1 Samuel 8. What did they do? They said, now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. King is going to solve it all. And But we're going to look at some of those kings tonight because kings didn't solve it all, um, not by any means. What would have solved it all is if they followed God's will, they followed God's example and his commands, but that was not what their choice was. So let's look at some of those examples of their request. First one we're going to look at is David, King David. 
And I know this might be beating a dead horse to some of y'all that are in Bible class, but we're going to look at David and Bathsheba. Um, we've talked about that the last couple weeks in class, but it's a good example of David and his idea of pleasing himself. We're not going to read the whole section because like, so we've been through it in class, but in 2 Samuel chapter 11 there, we're going to go through some key points. Chapter 2, or verse 2, he says, David saw her bathing. Okay? David inquired of her. David took her, verse 4. Uh, again in verse 4, David lay with her. Verse 6, David sent for Uriah. Verse 8, David bribed Uriah. Verse 13, David made Uriah drunk. Verse 15, David commanded for Uriah to be murdered. Verse 17, David caused Uriah's death. And then verse 27, David took Bathsheba as wife. David did what David wanted. And that's the idea of doing what pleases me. He, and he tried to even cover up what he wanted in his sin. And when we see there the importance of that lesson that is brought out, and we know this is one of the reasons the Bible, we know the Bible is from God, is because it's not objective. This was not a good thing of King David. But we see here in verse 27, And when the morning was passed, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. His doing what he wanted to do, pleasing of himself, displeased the Lord. So that's our first Old Testament example. Next, we're going to look at King Solomon, the wisest rich fool. And I say that because we're going to look at the rich fool in the New Testament. David, or Solomon was the wisest rich fool, and he was the wisest man of his time. But when we look in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, we see there in verses 1 through 11, um, where Solomon had some issues. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 11. Or 1 through 11. So he says here, notice the number of I's, me's, my's, and myself in here. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore enjoy pleasure, but surely this also was vanity. I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? I searched in my heart how, how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired... I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done, and on the labor in which I had toiled. And indeed, all was vanity 
and grasping for the wind, there was no prophet under the sun. I didn't count them, but I highlighted them in my notes here of all the I's and my's and me's and myself's, and there's a lot of them in there. Solomon spent a lot of time doing what he wanted to do and pleasing himself. When it came to the end, though, he gave some really good advice to us, and we see that in 12, 13, and 14, where he says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is a man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So he eventually saw the folly of his ways. And he does throughout that book when it says all is vanity, grasping for the wind. And that's what it is when you're focusing on yourself. It's doing that. I apologize. I have a mint in my mouth. My kids like to share things and they like to share colds and all types of stuff. So I've been kind of under the weather. So we're going to talk about Jeroboam next. So this was Jeroboam was going to be taking over. Um the other part of the kingdom. So the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonites, the Shilonitis, words to Jeroboam here in 1 Kings 11, 37 and 38. It says, so I will take you and you shall reign over all your heart's desires and you shall be king over Israel. Then it shall be, now, if you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house as I built for David. And I will give Israel to you. So the kingdom's going to be split here after Rehoboam takes over. It's going to be, we're going to have a divided kingdom. And Jeroboam's going to be over one section. So all of that came to pass that the people came to Rehoboam. Well, first Rehoboam found about this, and so Jeroboam fled for his life. But when he came back, um, the people came to Rehoboam and said, you know, your dad's rule is harsh. Please lighten your load. Rehoboam and his counselors denied that request. So they depart from Rehoboam, make Jeroboam his, make the king. We have the two tribes and the ten tribes. So Jeroboam does everything that he's commanded to do. And then we get to verse 26 of chapter 12. Jeroboam gets a little bit scared that the kingdom is going to, people might go back to Rehoboam. So Jeroboam said in his heart, verse 26 of chapter 12, 1 Kings, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So he has some fear of losing his kingdom, what he's been given. Although Ahijah told him and said, if you do everything or the words of God said, if you do everything I command you, he would give him an everlasting kingdom. But he chose not to. Verse 28, therefore the king asked advice, and this is where he starts to go wrong. He made two calves of gold and said, the people, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set up one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. This sounds like the uh, Mount Sinai all over again, doesn't it? Here's the, here's the gold, here's your calf, this is what brought you out of Egypt, right? No, that's not what brought them out of Egypt, not some gold calf. 29, he set one up in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin for the people, went to worship before one as far as Dan. 
He made shrines on the high places and made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. Jeroboam, again, this is Jeroboam, a singular person, ordained a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the author, oh, sorry, altar. So he did at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And at Bethel, he installed the priests on the high places which he had made. So he made offerings on the altar, which he had made at Bethel on the 15th day of the eighth month, in the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he ordained a feast for the children of Israel and offered sacrifices on the altar and burned incense. And again, verse 33 of chapter 13. After this event, Jeroboam did not turn away from his evil way, but again, he made priests from every class of people for high places. Whoever wished, he consecrated them, and he became one of the priests of the high places. Priests were a specific tribe, right? They weren't just anybody and everybody who wanted to be a priest. So he, he was afraid, and so he just said, okay, you want to be a priest? You can be a priest. Just kind of pleasing the people is what he was doing, hoping that the, the kingdom would stay with him. However, the kingdom would not stay with him. Because as we read there in verse 12, he said, if you do all as I command you. Well, Jeroboam did not do all God commanded him. Jeroboam did what he wanted to do. And we see here the consequences that in verses in chapter 15 of 1 Kings and 25 through 30. Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, becomes king. Okay. And, but he did just as evil as his father did. Um, then Basha, the son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar, conspired against him, and Basha killed him at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, while Nadab and all Israel had laid siege to Gibbethon. Basha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. And it was so, when he became king, that he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He did not leave Jeroboam anyone that breathed until he destroyed him, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken to his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. Because of the sins of Jeroboam, which, we, which he had sinned, by which he had made Israel sin, because of his provocation with which he had provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger. All of that, I'm afraid of this. I'm going to do all these things to make things easier for people, to help me, to help me keep things. His entire family line was wiped out because he was focusing on himself and what he wanted and not what he was told in the commands. And Jer Jeremiah prophesied against this idea in Jeremiah 11 and 8. said, Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone followed the dictates of his evil heart. Do what pleases me. Therefore I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant which I commanded them to do, but they which had not done. So that's a few of the Old Testament examples. There's a lot more that we could have covered. But I just had to limit those. Some of our New Testament examples we have of this attitude. And one of the areas I got this idea for one was a rich fool that we can read about in um, Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. It says, Then one of the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you. And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this, 
I will pull down my barns and will build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods, lay up for many years, take your ease, drink, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul shall be required of you. And then those things will then the then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself is not rich toward God. He was all about himself, all about his treasures, his possessions, and what am I going to do with all of my goods? Sounds a little bit like um, Solomon and all things he did. That's why I compared the wisest rich fool to the rich fool of the New Testament. And then we have the rich young ruler who came to God and said, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And we know that he went away, didn't he? And I'm not going to read all that for time's sake, but he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He wasn't willing to give away what he had, what pleased him, what made him happy for God. So what does the Bible say about the attitudes? What's the New Testament? So in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37, in response to the Pharisees' greatest commandments, what does Christ say here to the greatest commandments? 2, 22, 37. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And Luke takes it a little bit step further and says, also adds the word strength in there. Um, you shall love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And we're going to break that down a little bit. So your heart in Thayer's, and these are all according to Thayer's Greek lexicon, heart denotes the seat and center of all physical and spiritual life. The vigor and sense of your spiritual life, okay? Soul is the breath of life, the vital force which animates the body and shows itself a breathing life. Um, that which is a, a living being. The seed of the feelings, desires, affections, aversions. Mind, again from Thayer's, is the mind as a faculty of understanding, feeling, desiring, the way of thinking, thought. And then strength, added from Luke, is force, ability, and might. When we think about that, we have heart, soul, mind, and strength. That we're all supposed to love the Lord God. What does that mean, leave to love the things of this world? What does it leave for us for to love ourselves and be selfish? Because everything is focused towards God. We're supposed to love him with everything. Um, where is the me in all that? When we look at that, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. There's nothing left to focus on ourselves. All of our focus needs to be on God. Um, it doesn't leave much room for it. Now, mankind finds room to put ourselves in everything. We can weasel our way into any type of thing that we want to, but that's not really what we need to. The second commandment is interesting as well. It's still not about ourselves, is it? It says, this is the first and great commandment. And the second, you shall love your neighbor. Again, pointing it away from ourselves. We have to love God, and then we have to turn around. We have to love our neighbor. He never says in these commandments, you have to love yourself, take care of yourself, be yourself, you know, manage yourself. When we, you know, it's not a focus on ourselves. Yet why do men make it about themselves? The exact command to love our Lord um, with all of our heart, strength, mind, is found, again, in the gospel accounts of Mark and Luke. As we said, Luke adds a little bit to it. 
And then the concept is found in two other passages of Scripture, Hebrews 10, 16 and 1 John 5, 23. Uh, Hebrews 10, 16, author here says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. So we have to have those in our minds and hearts. And then 1 John 5, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is love God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So there's not a direct quote, again, throughout Scripture of that first command. Interestingly enough, though, there is the exact quote of you shall love your neighbor as yourself three other times in the New Testament. And the first one is in Romans 13, 9, Galatians 5, 14, and James 2, 8. So we're going to look at Galatians, or sorry, yeah, Galatians 5 and find out why. That the idea of loving your neighbor as yourself is repeated. So if you have your Bibles, you can look in Galatians 5 because we'll be in there for a little while. It's specifically verse 14, Galatians 5, 14. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So it's, a, again, a direct quotation of the same scripture that Jesus quoted in Matthew 22 and Mark and Luke. And why is that? So I think about it when I'm looking at this and studying for this. If we love our neighbor as ourselves, and first off, what are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be loving the Lord with all of our heart, soul, strength, and might. We're supposed to be giving the Lord everything we have. Well, if we love our neighbor as ourselves, what are we going to give them? What are we going to provide for them? What are we going to help them with? The logical thing says we would want them to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind, right? We want them to do that. And we're going to work to teach them that and help them. And when we strive to teach the truth, that love the Savior, and for them to do that, we're fulfilling the law and helping them do that. And then guess what they're going to do? They're going to do the same thing. And it's how the church grows, that we teach people to love the Lord their God. So much of the New Testament commands are on love, worship, attitudes, actions. Those works are aimed at how we treat others. They're not about ourselves, okay? Christianity is not inward. It's meant to be more outward to bring others through Christ. You know, a city set on a hill to be seen, our light shines outward. Our light doesn't shine on ourselves. It's not about ourselves. It's not about, you know, it's like I said, it's bring to us. It's not about bragging about how bright our light is, is it? We want people to see as we stay in Galatians chapter 5 there, I want to look at the fruit of the Spirit, and then we're going to look up above there after that at Galatians 5, 19 through 21 on the works of the flesh. Galatians 5, 22 through 23. <clears throat> it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such there is no law. I'm not going to go into these in great detail. Chuck has some great articles and um, practically a book on it that we have online of every fruit of the Spirit. If you're interested in that, I'm sure he will share that to you and we can show you where that is online. That He goes in more details. But these are just some general definitions of all of those words, of all those fruit. Love. Now, if we think about love, the greatest example of love, and that is that Christ gave himself on the cross for us. That wasn't selfish. 
Giving yourself on the cross, sacrificing your life, definitely not selfish. Joy, again, it's an outward expression toward others. It's meant towards others. Um, peace, calmness, and tranquility of heart and life. Long-suffering, long spirit, not to lose heart, patience, and forbearance. Sometimes we need to have patience and um, long-suffering with ourselves, but it's often meant for others. Gentleness, sympathetic kindness, or sweetness of temper, which puts others at ease, ease and shrinks from giving pain. Okay, so again, to focus on others. Goodness, uprightness of heart and life. Faithfulness, fidelity, the character of one who can be relied on. Gentleness, humility, meekness, courtesy, and considerateness. Self-control, the virtue of one who masters his desires and passions. All these fruit, remember they're singular fruit, it's the fruit of the Spirit. That we're to bear our aim toward the world and how we act toward the world. Now, when we compare this, when we go up just a little bit to Galatians 5.19, we're going to see the fruit, the flesh of the spirit and the difference between the fruit of the spirit and the flesh. Works of the flesh, not flesh of the spirit, sorry. Galatians 5.19 through 21, he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in the time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Most of those works of the flesh are about me. They're about what we do, whereas the fruit of the Spirit is about showing outward. Those works of the flesh are inward, what we do, drunkenness, selfish ambitions, envy, okay, adultery, uncleanness, lewdness. That's about us. We flip that. Christianity is outward. We have to be outward, not me-focused people. And I think we can clearly see that. It's about what do I want? What pleases me? How do I please me? How do you please me? Um, how do you give me what I want? And again, if I don't get what I want, I'm going to go somewhere that gives me what I want. And that's what we have today in the world. You know, because there's somebody out there. There's some denomination. There's some group that's going to give you what you want to hear and teach you what you want to be, what you want to hear or help condone you to participate in those things that are sinful. I had a coworker, I've probably mentioned this before, that his his what he did at church is he worked the bar at the weddings. That's what he did at church. He worked the bar. And that was condoned. That's what they did. So there's places out there to give you what they want. But we know from 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy that that's not right. It says, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed and deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from food which foods which create, which God created, to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And then in 2 Timothy, so that was 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3. 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4 says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, 
They will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. How true that is today when we look in the religious world. Church shopping, right? I was thinking about this earlier when I was some of our some of the 80s kids in here will remember about middle school we had to start taking these assessments to tell us what we were going to do when we were an adult we all had to take it's going to put you in a box take these and so you know what to study and what you need to do so you're going to know what you're going to be when you become an adult I feel like people need that like it's what people do today they get online and say well I like this activity I like this activity I like this activity oh, oh there's the church I need to go to instead of looking at the word of God um, you know, we might feel better in that moment when they do that, but they better enjoy their time in the ditch because in Matthew 5, 14, it says, let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. That's where they're going to be. And that's where they're going to stay unless they find the truth. And how are they going to find the truth unless somebody tells them? And we know by those people, as they spend that time in the ditch, they might not see it as being in the ditch. But if we go back to Galatians 5, the end of verse 21, Paul says, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Meology ends in death and destruction and eternity where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. Mark chapter 9. That's where that ends up. So... Why do people do this? Why? Well, you can go all the way back to Proverbs. Again, this is Solomon. He was pretty wise, and he wrote some good things in Proverbs for us to learn from. And in both 14, chapter 14, verse 12, and 16, 25, Solomon writes, There's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. It just seems right. Then, not man's way. When we look at God's word, God's thoughts, if we find out that our way, Man's way, the way that seems right to man, seems right to us, the just feel good way, or the I believe it this way, I believe the Bible says that way ends in death. We have to go back to the truth. Now, Matthew explains it like Russ had a sermon, I think, last week um, about the gate, the two gates, right? The wide gate and the narrow gate. Narrow gate's not easy. Wide gate's easy. There's a lot of people on that wide gate. But we have to show people the narrow gate and the blessings that come on the narrow gate as well, the narrow path to go through the narrow gate. We have to show them those blessings. Now, meology is wide open. They look in the world and say, I can do whatever I want to do, however I want to do it, and it'll make me feel better. But in eternity and in the end, it's not going to make them feel better. Yeah, Galatians 6.3 was a lot of good when it came to this sermon in Galatians. Paul says, for if anyone thinks himself to be something, he is nothing. He deceives himself. And that's what exactly what the world is doing. They're deceiving themselves and thinking about pleasing themselves. And you can also find that same concept in 1 Corinthians 8.12, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, or sorry, 8, 1 Corinthians 8, 2, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, and Philippians 2, 3 through 4. 2, 3 through 4 says, and let nothing be done through selfish ambition or deceit. Well, meology is selfish ambition. But in lowliness of mind, let each other, 
Let each esteem others better than himself. Flips it around again. It's not about me. It's about what I do for others. Verse 4, let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. That's what Christianity is, is looking out for others. So we have to be careful of this idea of meology because it's everywhere. It's prevalent, and it's a great tool for Satan to use um, because we're not seeking the love of God and the opportunities to teach and love others. We have to not seek to please ourselves. I'm not saying you can't have some fun. Don't get that wrong. Um, you know, we can have fun in life, enjoy in life. But when all of our goal of worship and all of our goal of living this life is what makes me happy, and we are not focused on the right things. I want to close with the greatest example we have of who didn't focus on themselves, and that is Jesus Christ. We look at Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus, he, he could have got anything he wanted. He could have got anything he wanted. He was the Son of God. He knew the thoughts of men. He could perform miracles. But his entire goal was not about himself. His goal was to serve God and to serve man. And we can see that when we read all the gospel accounts of what his focus was. His focus was not on himself. And so if his desire was to serve, our desire needs to be to serve. To serve in church, to serve others even if it's challenging, even if it's difficult, even if we're scared of what you know we might teach and if we teach error. Here's the thing, if we, when I think about that, if we happen to teach error, we give somebody the opportunity to correct us and teach us better. If we sit in error and never try to talk to people about things, then we're always going to be in error. I'm not wanting to get up here and teach error, but if I do, I know there are brethren out here that are going to help correct me and help me and get me on the right path. However, if I have the ability and I sit in that pew and I do absolutely nothing, I'm going to be judged for that as well. And we have to be aware of that. So we must seek to serve and not to be served, not to be focused on me. It's not me, myself, and I and my multiple personalities and what can make me happy. It's about serving God. So what are you seeking and serving today? I hope and pray it is not yourself. I look out in the audience and everybody is that I see here is usually here. Every Sunday, every Wednesday, and every opportunity there is to be here when the doors are open and to fellowship together and hear people talk about things. So I don't think it is, your, is yourself. However, you might be struggling with something, and we always have that opportunity to come forward and repent if we're struggling with those sins. And I pray that we are seeking to serve God and serve others, because by serving others, 
by loving others, by reaching out to others and trying to teach them about the love of God and how to love God, God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind, we are fulfilling scriptures and loving our neighbors. If you have need at this time, you have the opportunity to make yourself right as we stand and sing.